This is Vaya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. Welcome back. Now we're going to be speaking with Florence resident and Emmy Award winning filmmaker Larry Hart. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Natalia. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm fine, although I have been better. <laughs> why what's is happening? That? Yes. What's, why is that? <laughs> well, I've just been reading up on what's happening in the documentary funding world. And you might ask yourself, you listeners out there, why should this concern me? Well, this is a free speech issue. And the government for a long time has been, been providing money through the National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, trickles down to the states, state humanities councils, and many other branches of the government that provide some kind of funding for the kind of television you might like to watch, say on PBS or even on HBO. This is how documentaries get made, and documentaries frequently are challenging the status quo or bringing you stories you might not ever might not hear elsewhere. So when government money starts to dry up or when there's a threat of it drying up, there's this ripple effect through the entire industry and not just the filmmakers, but the other funders. You know what I'm talking about? Why are the funders uh, worried? Well, I'll give you an example of who the funders are. And you know some of these are kind of household names like the Ford Foundation, which is not Ford Motor Company many, you know, many, many decades ago it broke off and this is the, the fortune or the MacArthur fund or our Sundance, which gets a, a lot of money uh, from Soros. George Soros morphed into uh, the Sundance fund. He, he had his own uh, fund for a while. Uh, these organizations who, who all work together and all know each other, they are scared because they can't do it alone. They can't provide enough money for all the documentary films that they want to have made and that public television wants have to have made. And that, say, even Netflix or Amazon or those places, which can't afford to fund lots and lots of films. And so if you don't know how much it costs to make uh, a documentary film, you know, you, you might see an hour-long or a two-hour-long film, the kind that get nominated for the Academy Awards, and you say, oh, wow, I'd like to see more of those. Well, they cost between half a million, a million, million and a half sometimes. That's a lot of money. It takes a long time to raise the filmmakers are basically spending five, six, seven years probably making these long-form documentaries. There's a handful that get sponsored, but most of them are a slog, a funding slog. So what happens when the government starts saying, we're going to cut off the arts? It's not just the NEH and the NEA. It has this ripple effect through the entire filmmaking community, and that becomes basically a free speech issue. Does the, the threat of less funds influence then what filmmakers would yes. like to work on? it's always been that way. About 23 years ago or so, I had a Fulbright in London, in England, and I spent a lot of time trying to get to know the BBC when I was there. And the BBC was going through a big transition. They had been for a long time this multi-billion dollar agency that funded and had in-house filmmakers and they produced some of the best documentaries in the world and they were transitioning to a different model where the independent filmmakers worked outside of the BBC and had to come in and apply for funding. And I learned at that, that, that time that although there was lots and lots of money available for filmmakers, that the U.S. system was in fact a little bit better because our system was atomized. By what that I mean there were, there were many, many different ways of getting into the PBS system. There's 347 separate stations. There's uh, the Corporation Public Broadcasting. There's PBS. There's the National Endowment of the Humanities. All these different funding sources. But as money starts to dry up, the private foundations that help supplement those sources start to talk to each other and say, 
Well, what do we want to see have made? What's, what's in fashion this year? Are we talking about women's issues? Are we talking about AIDS? Are we talking about immigration, refugee crisis? Whatever they think is in fashion at the time. And they, in a way, become a monopoly. Even though there might be 10 or 15 major funding sources, if all of them are talking to each other at the same time and saying and comparing notes. In fact, now they've gone to what they call a, a, a core application process. So if you have kids going to college, you know that they can basically fill out one application for as many film schools, schools as they want to pay for. Well, it can, it's becoming the same way for filmmakers. They can fill out one application just as slightly and send it to a whole bunch of foundations. I would think that foundations would want to support a diversity of films, not all say, well, let's work on, say, uh, they do, they do, but what, but they usually change their emphasis from year to year. I'm not saying that's a, it's an absolute cabal, but there are these people are talking to each other and saying, well, what did you fund? What should we fund? What should we emphasize this year? And sometimes it's a real guessing game for a filmmaker to know, or sometimes you just have to wait till your idea comes into fashion. I'll give you an example. Uh, this is from years ago, but we did a, a major series, a two-part series on tuberculosis. The, the People's Plague, the greatest killer of all time. It's a, it's a great historical story, it's a scientific story, and it's a political story. You know that most of the people who die from, um, from AIDS are actually dying from opportunistic diseases like tuberculosis. So it's, it's a current disease, even though there's a kind of an antibiotic cure for it that's been around for a long time. Well, when we started raising money for this film, nobody was interested. PBS said, oh, we're not interested in medical history films. It took us eight years to fund it, but eventually, six years into it, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting said, we want to emphasize medical issues this year. We had been applying for years, and then we sent in our proposal again, and then we got the money, and then the National Endowment for Humanities, which has said we're not interested in medical issues, said, oh, now you have money from that organization, we'll give it to you. So if you, <laughs> it goes around and around. Well, my, 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 my point is that it's, it's getting harder and harder when the pie is getting smaller. And the number of people who want pieces of that pie is growing. And it, you probably, if you know any, anybody under the age of 50, right, they want to be a filmmaker or their kids want to be filmmakers. Um, and they want to go to film school instead of getting their M MBA. But making a living, a sustainable living, that's a, that's a, you know, it's a word we hear all the time about agriculture. You know, but now that's a word they're using in the film community. What is a sustainable approach to filmmaking? How can people make a living at this without only doing commercials. And if we uh, circle back to a First Amendment issue, uh, freedom of expression, if we do not have a diversity of views in film. Right, well, it's, it's sort of the, you know, the golden rule analogy, you know, the people who have the gold make the rules. Well, the people who have the gold also pay for the press. And if you are not able to make a living at it, then how are you going to do, for example, investigative journalism, which we know there's a crisis in journalism. It's very hard to get a good-paying job. You know, the New York Times is actually saying, saying to people, please subscribe to us online or whatever you do so we have some money coming. You can make donations to the New York Times, Washington Post, it's all the same. Well, filmmakers have been doing this forever. Uh, as the money dries up, you're going to see fewer and fewer people who say, I want to spend my life exposing these issues and getting these issues in front of the public. Right, because if filmmaking is a, is a, a vocation that requires... It's, a it's, lot of time. It's labor intensive, requires a lot of people, and it can be very expensive. I mean, if you're doing a film in your backyard, your backyard and you have all the equipment, 
possibly you might be able to get something broadcast quality and get it out there on television, at least on the web. But if it involves any travel, it involves any animation, any music, anything professional like that, any voices, that adds up very quickly into possibly the hundreds of thousands of dollars. What's a, what's a possible solution to this? Because I, I heard that you, what you said. This is not a, a Politburo that decides which films are going to be uh, made, even though it does sound like it. Well, it has that aspect to it because it's so small that the people who, who make the funding decisions all but, know each other. But still, it's still more democratic than in a lot of, in a lot of countries. I like, the, I like Great Britain's model where uh, the original one, actually. Well, the original one was based on license fees. And still is based on license fees, and everybody who has a television has to pay a license fee. You can see what's happened in the age of the internet that this is going to start to crumble. But I would like to see, and this is kind of a pipe dream, I would like to see a percentage of the federal budget dedicated to the arts, and some of which would go into filmmaking, some of which would go into museums and other, other, other uh, visual arts. The combined budget for the NEA and the NEH is only about $300 million, which is probably what... Trump is spending on security for one weekend in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, many weekends, I don't know. But we are, as a country, we are not putting very much money into the arts. And it is a rounding error in the federal budget. There's just the $300, millions that, $300 million now that's going into it. And we sometimes, you can see it, and particularly at state levels, they will mandate that certain construction projects put 1% subways, for example. And that's why you see art in the subways. Well, I'd like to see a mandated percentage of the arts, uh, I mean, of the uh, of any kind of budget, tax budgets or expenditures at both state and federal level that would be dedicated to film production. Uh, we do have some tax incentives, but it's not enough. The, speaking of art in the subway, the New York City subway system has, this, a, or at least had, this fantastic program, a poetry in motion. They still, they still have, they, they come and go, but the new subway stations all, all have art and then they have poetry and it's beautiful and people appreciate it. And these things are, have a multiplier effect. It's not only a multiplier effect in terms of making people feel better about their environment, but generally people say that $1 invested in the arts produces at least 10, 12, or maybe more dollars in, for the economy. In this age of Trump, in this age where funders are worried about uh, what's happening, and then there's also the problem of where are people going to see these films? Well, the broadcast venues have really changed. And I think this is, in a way, good news. Uh, when we produce shorter films that are not broadcast length, we don't have to worry anymore about how people are going to see them. We can put them on the web. We can put them on for the paywall. Or you can put them up for free. And this allows people to go to a funder and say, I don't have to go through another level of bureaucracy. There's not a gateway that I have to crash through to get my film out there to people. On the other hand, you have to pay for the promotion and the social media to get people to want to see it. And they're competing with so many more things. Any individual now who has a television and internet and a cell phone on any, at any given moment has a choice of hundreds, if not thousands of things they can watch. So it's not only money for the production, but it's money convincing people to look at what you've made. Let's continue talking about this, Larry, next week. So we'll just make this into a two-parter. Can we continue for next week? Yeah, I'll be back next week. Thank you very much, Larry. It just gets worser and worser and worser under this Trump. Fortunately, there are people who are doing things to counter the, the weight of hate that this presidential administration seems to 
relish. Among them is former Attorney General Eric Holder, who is spearleading a new group on redistricting, redistricting reform. And as, as some people know, the Republicans have drawn new lines across the United States in districts, in voting districts, which just about guarantees them victory when it comes to elections. The Democrats have done that too. The Democrats did it recently in Massachusetts. Well, not, not too recently, but a few years ago, um, in fact, uh, Amherst State Rep and now Senate President Stan Rosenberg, I think he's the one who spearheaded the effort to redraw the lines regarding the congressional district, and that's how former Congressman John Olver's district was absorbed by our now Congressman Jim McGovern uh, from Worcester, a Democrat from Worcester, a very progressive Democrat, Democrat from Worcester. And when I say progressive, I mean progressive. I don't mean uh, out of this. Uh, I want to be nice. I want to be nice. My friend Monty is teaching me to be really nice. Not this. The not the wing of of voters who want to overthrow the current system that we have um, and bring Bernie Sanders into the presidency. I don't think that's ever going to work. That's that's a that's the nicest way I can say it. There's just too much that Bernie doesn't get about people of color, but he is very good at other important things. Um, encouraging people and um, just making people feel really happy that he's saying uh, things that need to be said and he's saying, saying them loudly and he's being heard across the nation. So that is good. But um, I'm still trying to get over how he hurt Hillary Clinton and him hurting Hillary Clinton, how then... Uh, then the media would just, you know, gobble that up. And, you know, the media even being what the national media, that's what I'm talking about, how they just gobbled up all the lies that Bernie Sanders said about Hillary Clinton and then all the lies said by the Russian hackers. And here we are today. Oh, my goodness. Will it get better? Yes. This is Viacom Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP.